Let us now read our text of preparation, Genesis 50, verses 15 through 26. Genesis 50, verse 15 through 26. Genesis 50, from verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please, forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years and 10 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let us continue our reading. Reading now, Exodus 1, verses 1 to 7, our passage of today. Exodus 1, from verse 1. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, 
Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Word of the Lord. Oh Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. Oh Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, these are the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20, verse 7. Oh Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. Have you ever said something similar? Or have you ever acted as if God had deceived you? Sometimes we have doubt. But deep inside, we know that God is faithful. Why? Because his word and his deeds say so. And that's even why we are here this morning. Another question. Do you believe that God cannot be unfaithful? The Belgic Confession in Article 1 speaks of God's perfections, such as his eternality, his incomprehensibility, immutability, and others. Do you believe that according to those perfections that we confess, it is impossible for God to be unfaithful? And the answer is yes. We believe it is impossible for God to be unfaithful. Scripture affirms that God cannot deny himself even when we are faithless. But none of us believe God's faithfulness as we ought to believe. If we had such a trust in God, we would not sin. But we do sin. And God, knowing our weaknesses, makes promises and keeps them to show us how faithful and true He is. Today's text speaks of God keeping promises He made to the patriarchs. This morning, we go together through Exodus 1, verses 1 to 7. 
And the goal of the exposition is to proclaim to you the faithfulness of God. The theme summarizing our, our text is this. God remains faithful to his promises by multiplying his people in Egypt. God remains faithful to his promises by multiplying his people in Egypt. Under our theme, we will see two points. First, from the household of Israel, and then to the nation of Israel. From the household of Israel to the nation of Israel. Our first point, from the household of Israel. We call the second book of the Bible Exodus. But have you ever wondered about the origins of the name? Yes, Exodus refers to the history of the deliverance of our ancestors from Egypt. But Hebrew speakers call it the names. Why? Because it starts with a list of names, as we have just read. But why do we have this list of names at the beginning of our text? We have the list of names because the author, God, wants to point us back to Genesis. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand that this divinely inspired historical record is a continuation of what happened previously in Genesis. What happened in Genesis? In Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham. He promised Abraham that he will make Abraham's name great, that Abraham will be the father of many nations, and that through him, God will bless all the families of the earth. God also promised Abraham a land, the land of Canaan. But Abraham died without land. His son and heir, Isaac, also died without land. Finally, while Jacob was living as a, was living as a resident alien in Canaan, the promised land, a famine arose, and he had to leave the promised land. He had to flee to Egypt to avoid a cruel death by starvation. He had to leave the promised, to leave the promised land to save his skin. And so for us, it might seem that God had forgotten his promises to Abraham. But God had not forgotten. You see, Jacob was the last of the three major patriarchs of Genesis. From Jacob, as we read, we have the 12 tribes. And this explains, at least in part, why the text is tied to Genesis in general, but also to Peniel in particular. Throughout Genesis, God showed his faithfulness to the patriarchs. And Peniel was one of those instances where God showed himself faithful. 
Now, what happened in Peniel? In Peniel, Jacob was in great danger. Esau, his brother, whom he had cheated, was coming to meet him with 400 men. Jacob was stressed. Why? Because Esau had the power to destroy him. In the night, God appeared to Jacob as an angel the night before the meeting. And Jacob wrestled with that angel. And at the end of the wrestling, the angel wrenched Jacob's hip. But the angel also blessed Jacob. And in doing so, he changed the name of Jacob from Jacob to Israel, saying to Jacob, you strove with men and with God, and you have prevailed. Later, God in mercy to Jacob, later, the following day, God in mercy to Jacob gave him favor in the eyes of Esau, pacifying Esau and allowing Jacob and Esau to be reconciled. That was a great act of faithfulness from God. Now, how do we know that the Holy Spirit wants us to remember God's faithfulness in Peniel? We know through some indices in our text. To begin, we have the names order. The arrangement of the names that we have in our text is similar to the arrangement that Jacob made just before in Peniel, just before meeting Esau. The names of Jacob's sons are arranged according to their mothers. Then we have the word descendant in verse 5. In Hebrew, the text for descend, the word for descendant is refers to the ones from Jacob's hips. Do you remember, just in the story, the wrench heap of Peniel? And the final pointer to Peniel is the use of the names Jacob and Israel to refer to the same person. So again, using these three indices that are the names order, the expression Jacob's heaps, and the name, the use of the name Jacob and Israel interchangeably, the Holy Spirit points us back to Peniel in Genesis. Beyond Peniel, the Holy Spirit reminds us of the faithfulness that God showed to Jacob when he delivered him from the wrath of Esau. What do we see? We see that God was faithful to Jacob when Jacob was in Canaan. And so we can expect that God will be also faithful to Jacob even outside of Canaan, as we shall see. Next, our text speaks of 70 descendants of Jacob. 70 of his descendants went to Egypt. 70 has great significance in scriptures. Seven is the digit 
of perfection, and 10 is the number of fullness. In addition, we know that in Genesis 10, the table of nations speaks of 70 nations after the dispersion that happened in Babel. From those 70 nations, we have all the nations existing on the face of the earth today. So what can we understand? What can we infer from this? We can infer that the Holy Spirit communicates to us two things. First, Jacob's family had reached the correct number for the next step in the plan of God. Second, Jacob's family in Egypt represented a microcosm of the world, a small representation of the entire, the entire human race. What does it mean? It means that what God was doing with this family was to have universal impact, cosmic impact. It was not just about Jacob's family, but it was about the entire world. God was saving Jacob's family in order to bless the entire world. Just as today, God is preserving the church in order to bless all the nations. Next, we read that Joseph was already in Egypt. This information is again a pointer to Genesis. Let us remind ourselves of what happened to Joseph. Children, do you remember the story of Joseph? Joseph was a gifted child. And his brothers were jealous of him. And because they were jealous, they sold him as slave. But God was with Joseph. And he gave him great diligence in his work and also the ability to interpret dreams. And it happened that Pharaoh had a dream. And no one in Egypt could interpret the dream. But Joseph was able to interpret the dream and tell to Pharaoh that seven years of famine were coming. And he could even advise Pharaoh on what to do in order to decrease the negative effect of the, family, of the famine. So Pharaoh was very pleased with Joseph. And he appointed Joseph grand vizier of Egypt, a kind of prime minister of Egypt, as we sang in the psalm. Some years later, when the famine started, Canaan the land of the brothers and father of Joseph was also affected. But Joseph could invite his family to come and live with him in Egypt because of his high position. So Jacob's family settled in Goshen in Egypt and providentially escaped the fatal calamity that would have befallen them had they stayed in Egypt. So at that junction, God was again showing his faithfulness. As Joseph himself said in the text that we read in Genesis 50, in, in Genesis 50, please. His brothers 
meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God sent Joseph ahead of his family to Egypt to help them escape starvation and prepare a place for them. Likewise, God also sent Jesus, his son, to go ahead of us on the path of suffering, on the path of the cross, to preserve us and to satisfy God's wrath against us, the spiritual descendants of Jacob. After having triumphed over sin and death, Jesus had been enthroned far above all principalities and dominions. And with this authority, as head of the church, he has sent down the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is now assembling, gathering the church. In doing, and in doing so, the Holy Spirit preserves the descendants of Jacob that we are from eternal misery. So, whenever, whenever you look around and you feel afraid and discouraged because you think that the circumstances of the church are hopeless, remember that the God of Jacob has in Christ a plan of preservation for the descendants of Jacob. Such a plan is even, is even more wonderful than the one that he carried out through Joseph. Why? Because Joseph died, but Jesus lives forever, and his rule is without end. As we continue our text, we realize that not only Joseph died, but all his brothers and all that generation also died. And this is another historical redemptive marker pointing us back to Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 starts with life. But soon we have sin in Genesis 3 entering into the world through the disobedience of Adam. And with sin comes death. And that's why when you read the genealogy, you, have, you read in Genesis, and he died, and he died, and he died. And Genesis itself ends with a coffin, as we read in Genesis 15. 50, please. The coffin of the great Joseph. Genesis started with life, but at the end of Genesis, we have the reign of death. How many people in Scripture were as great as Joseph? Not so many. But even Joseph died. So the Holy Spirit reminds us that this reign of death was prevailing. And even Joseph and all that generation died. Let us keep then this point, this reminder in mind. So, please, let us keep this point in mind to understand the rest of, our, of the text and to have a greater appreciation of what God is doing in the midst of his people. Now, let us summarize our first point. In our first point, we saw that God brought Jacob's family to Egypt to preserve it and to accomplish his promises to the patriarchs. We went back to Joseph's role 
and we understood that Jacob's family was a microcosm, a small representation of all the families of the earth. Now, let us see how God transformed this family that narrowly escaped starvation into a nation. And this will be our second point, to the nation of Israel. To the nation of Israel. We read in verse 7 that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. In verse 7, Moses piles growth upon growth. The expression increased greatly can also be translated as the swarm, the teamed. So we understand that the people of Israel grew exceedingly strong in number to the extent that the entire land of Goshen was filled with them. Such a growth was not natural. It was a miraculous growth because God was busy transforming Jacob's family into the nation of Israel in line with the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis. The language that scripture uses here echoes Genesis 1, when God at creation commanded all living creatures to multiply and fill the earth. In the Hebrew, the imagery communicated is a bursting forth of life. In the midst of the reign of death that started at the fall, God brings new life. He brings re regeneration in the midst of decay. He brings restoration, rejuvenation. So we understand that God made Jacob's family fulfill the creation mandate. Where all the families of the earth had failed, God made his elect family succeed to his glory. In the next verse, we have a word of contrast, a but, at the beginning of verse 7. And that but serves to emphasize the contrast between the reign of death that we spoke about and the reign and the life-giving work of God among his people. This contrast between life and death pointers to the ultimate victory that the church will have over death at Christ's return. It also points us to the current role of the church in the world. What is that role? Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the church is currently showing forth the path of life. Every time that the word is preached, God imparts life to his elect. And every time that someone is saved, the kingdom of death, the reign of death, decreases. Whenever the influence of the church spread, flourishing, life in abundance happens. And although the final consummation of the church's victory over death has not yet happened, we know that we are already 
victorious over death. For us, death is no longer a payment for sin, as the Catechism confesses, but it is an entrance, and it puts an end to sin, and it is an entrance into eternal life. The more you meditate on this passage and its context, the more you see some glimpses of the marvelous wisdom of God. God does a million things in single moves. One might wonder, God made the world and the devil wrecked it. He called Abraham and promised him a land. Now his descendants are resident alien in Egypt. What a sad situation. Why is that, someone might wonder. But God is in the background making wise moves all the time. Think with me for a moment. What would have happened to Jacob's family had they stayed in Canaan? The Canaanites would have assimilated them, and all the promises of God concerning the Messiah would have come to nothing. But in Egypt, they were isolated because the Egyptians despised shepherds. So Egypt, the land where they fled because of the calamity of famine, became a good place for them. It served for them as an incubator in which they could grow in number and become a distinct nation. Thus, God was gracious and faithful to Jacob when he sent him to Egypt. The famine was not mere happenstance. God was acting in his sovereign grace to form a people for himself, a royal race, a royal priesthood through which he will fulfill all the promises that he had made to Abraham. At the same time, God was also realizing even the promises that he made to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden concerning the seed of the woman. So, in other words, God sent Jacob's family to Egypt to prepare the terrain for Moses, Joshua, Gideon, David and Solomon, Daniel, and all those heroes of faith, and ultimately, Christ himself. He was preparing the terrain to fulfill his promises of redemption to the wretched sinners that we are, demonstrating the great extent of, his, of the richest place of his great wisdom and faithfulness. But it's not all about God's faithfulness. We see again the fruits of God's faithfulness in our text when it says that the land was filled with them. Scripture is saying that God realized through them the command to multiply that he gave in Genesis 1. God multiplied a single family into a nation and they swarmed the land of Goshen. To better understand, you can picture a colony of ants. You are farmers here, most of you, and so you know. And you, how is the colony? You have many ants actively working in an organized way, busy. And this is the image, the imagery that 
the text communicate to us concerning the children of Israel in Goshen. They were filling the land of Goshen with image bearers of God. Thus, we understand that God was not done with Jacob's family when he sent them to Egypt. The death of Joseph's generation could not stop him in his work. And although death entered the world after Adam's transgression, God has been continuously working in the background to bring in Christ a race that will triumph over death. Dear congregation of the Lord, this is the wonderful heavenly Father that we have. Isn't he worthy of all our trust and adoration? Shouldn't we be continuously praising him? Can you tell me someone who is like him, wise beyond understanding, strong and compassionate like our heavenly Father? There is no one. No one. Therefore, when discouragement sets in, when the pressures of temptation become almost irresistible, and your flesh and the devil and the world tell you, oh, you are on your own now, you know? God has abandoned you. Have mercy on yourself. Give yourself grace. Make peace with your sins, and so on and on. Remember that our Heavenly Father is faithful. He delivered Jacob. He took care of his people, multiplying them from a family, a single family, to a nation. He sacrificed his son to redeem his children. He has already invested so much. He will not refrain from bringing you help in times of need. Therefore, wait patiently for God. Wait patiently. Why? God for because God will never those disown who put their trust in Him alone, as we sing. Now, what is the historical redemptive take of this passage? How do we, the church, fit into this wonderful picture of God's work? The answer is, we are the spiritual descendants of Jacob. We have been incorporated into Israel through Christ. God wanted Moses to preserve this story for our encouragement so that we might realize how faithful God has been to us. And more, we realize that we are, as church, the beginning of the fulfillment of those promises to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think with me for a moment. Christians today are the most persecuted group of people on the earth. Despite such a great opposition, the church is moving forward. Even though in some regions of the world, like here in Canada, the church seems to decrease, globally, God is working. He's assembling his elect 
from all the nations and tongues. So, my dear people, let us be careful when we complain to our Heavenly Father about our difficulties, about our afflictions as church. Sure, we must turn to Him with our burdens. And as a loving Heavenly Father, He delights in helping those who rely on Him. But when we turn to Him, we should turn to Him in humility and patience, lest we find ourselves obstructing God's plans without knowledge. Remember, remember, God turns hard rocks into standing waters, darkness into light, death into life. Remember that He will turn our, to our good whatever affliction He sends us in this life of sorrows. And the, the afflictions that the church is enduring currently will bring only at the end a greater salvation, a greater glory. So remember, people of Christ, remember that our Heavenly Father is faithful. Now, to such great faithfulness, what should be our response? Thankfulness? Yes. Obedience? Yes. Praises? Yes. But not only among us, not only when we are together, everywhere. The entire province, all of Ontario, must know that we have a wonderful, faithful, heavenly Father. Conclusion. What is the carry home message from today's passage? The Holy Spirit in our text showed us how God had remained faithful to his people. He did so, God remained faith, the Holy Spirit reminded us that by showing us some events, by bringing us back, please, to some events in the family. Sorry, my pronunciation disturbs me. The Holy Spirit reminded us by bringing us back to some events, events, yeah, that's how I should say it, in the life of Jacob. And the Holy Spirit reminds us how they moved from Egypt, uh, from Canaan to Egypt, and how God wonderfully, miraculously multiplied them, thereby beginning to accomplish the patriarchal promises. We also saw that the church is a continuation of that work of faithfulness that God had already started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just like God multiplied his people in Egypt, he is multiplying his church today. So let us pray, God, our Heavenly Father, that he may engrave in our hearts the knowledge of his faithfulness. Let us pray that, led by the Holy Spirit, strong of his faithfulness, we may rest in him as individuals and also as churches, no matter our circumstances. Amen.